Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Last week we made it as far as Isaiah 3.12. We are going to be picking up in verse 13 tonight. The next section of Isaiah, God is going to lay out his case. In fact, verse 13 says the Lord arises to contend. He's standing up. He's making himself obvious. He's presenting himself in order to make his case And his case is to contend against Judah and Jerusalem. And he stands to judge the people. Now he's going to compare Jerusalem and all the people in it to both a vineyard and to a rich, overdressed, seductive woman. And in both of those cases... He's going to judge them with much of the same language that we've seen already, that they are incredibly guilty, nothing but guilty, and so he is going to hold them accountable for their guilt. And then, right behind that, we're going to see the promises. This becomes thematic in the book of Isaiah. We're going to see the promises then that God is going to restore them, that there is a glorious day coming. And in fact, in chapter 4, when you read about the restitution of Jerusalem and Judah, it is because in that day there is going to be a branch of the Lord who will be beautiful and glorious. So that's a direct reference to Christ. So you see this kind of timeline laid out. That is a timeline that all of the prophets share, which is... God gave the law to Jerusalem, to the Jews, to Israel collectively. They violated that law. They broke that law. And as a consequence, they are nothing but guilty, sick, depraved, worthy of judgment. God is then going to punish those people, but not lose those people. And then he's going to send the solution. He's going to send his son. He's going to send the branch. He's going to send the Messiah. And because that is Israel's Messiah, Israel's Messiah is going to pay the sin debt for erring Israel so that God can promise them a glorious future because of promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which promises he's not going to break. And that is the layout that you see time and time and time again from the prophets of Israel. Okay, so now let's talk about prophecy for just a moment and eschatology. The vast majority of the prophecy that's in the Bible is about Israel. Eschatology is that part of prophecy that just simply hasn't happened yet. It's the stuff that's going to happen in the last days, the things that are going to occur in the future. And because prophecy is primarily about Israel, so is eschatology. Eschatology is primarily about God's dealings with Israel. Get this right, eschatology is not primarily what God is doing for 
the church. That's a part of it. There is a part of the eschatology that is Christ is coming back for his bride. The marriage supper of the bride, the rapture away of the church. Okay, that's part of eschatology. But then God turns his attention back to Israel because the main theme of the Bible is Israel. As I keep saying, you get Israel wrong, you get the Bible wrong. You get Israel right, you get the Bible right. When it comes to eschatology, though, there is, as we were saying last night at men's group, there is this very wide spectrum of eschatological views. Everything from full preterism all the way out to hyper-dispensationalism and then everything in between. That means that somebody in that spectrum got it wrong. It's impossible to say that they're all right because they are saying diametrically opposite things. So they can't all be right. Somebody just sort of ipso facto has to be wrong. The theological world will tell you that eschatology is a secondary topic. That's the language. They'll say salvation, how people get saved, what God has done to save people, the redemption story, the story of Christ, that's primary stuff in the Bible. Whereas things that don't have to do directly with salvation, like history or like the details of Israel's performance of the law or things like that, they'll say, well, that's all secondary, and especially eschatology. When the topic of eschatology comes up, people will say to you, that's secondary. That's not of primary importance. So let's think about that statement for just a moment. Throughout the Bible, we are told, in the law, in the writing, and in revelation, in prophecy, we are told not to add anything to the word of God and not to take anything away. If you're not to add anything to the word of God, then that means you're not supposed to add your opinion, your creativity. You're not supposed to write anything and then add it to the word of God and pretend that that is also the word of God. The word of God says what the word of God means to say, and what it says is sufficient to get you all the way from here to your preordained future. Therefore, it doesn't need additions. You don't need to add anything to it. And you're instructed, don't add anything to it. And don't take anything away from it, which means that you can't truncate it. You can't just preach the parts of it you like. You have to take the whole of the Bible. The reformers had a phrase that they used to go along with things like sola scriptura and sola gratia and soli deo gloria. They, they also said tota scriptura, which means all of scripture. So scripture alone, but all of scripture. And so I argue, I, I would certainly say that if you are truncating the Bible because it doesn't fit with your pet theology or your pet doctrines, and you're only concentrating on those parts of the Bible that you agree on or agree with, then you are, in fact, deleting parts of the Bible. You're not saying everything that's in the Bible. You are taking away from the word, which is the very thing God has said. And the reason that I mentioned 
that it was in the law and in the writings and in the prophecy is because that is the whole of the Bible. That is Tanakh. That is all three sections, all three divisions of the Bible. And in all three of those divisions, you read, don't take from it, don't add anything to it. Okay, so let me add one more wrinkle. We also know in the earliest book in the Bible, the book of Job, arguably the earliest demonstration of who God is and what God's like and the early defense by God of himself. In that book, we read that God's anger was kindled against Job's friends specifically because they did not say what was right about him. So not saying what is right about God gets his anger kindled against you. So kindled, in fact, that they had to have a mediator step in for them. God said, get an animal, get it to Job. He'll pray for you. He'll sacrifice for you. I'll accept him so that I don't destroy you. Okay, that's the kind of anger that God has when you don't say what is right about him. Now let's go back to our first premise. You've got this wide eschatological spectrum. And somewhere in that spectrum, there are people saying things that aren't right about God. Somebody is saying something somewhere. Someone's right and someone's wrong. Or maybe they're both wrong. But invariably, there are people, eschatologically speaking, who have taken a position and are advancing that position, and they are wrong. They are saying things about God that God didn't say, or they're adding to the word, or they're taking away from the word, and they are, I think, taunting God. So what are we going to do about that? What are we going to say about that? That seems to be a bit of a, a conundrum at best and a threat of God's anger at worst. How are we going to avoid being wrong? How are we going to avoid being in the eschatological camp that has raised the ire of God? How do we know for sure that we're not saying what God has not said about himself? Well, the only way to do that is to make sure you say exactly what the scripture says, not interpreting what the scripture says, not allegorizing what the scripture says, but saying what the scripture says. Therefore, as we're going through the book of Isaiah, you're going to continually see promises from Isaiah of a glorious future for Israel and specifically Jerusalem. So then what should we say about that? If we say God is done with Israel, if we say God has replaced national Israel with the church in some way, well, then we're not actually saying what the Bible says. We've made up a theory. We've created a conjecture that we're calling theology. And then we have forced that onto the Bible when the Bible didn't actually say it. Instead, I think the safe way to do it, the way that comes closest to guarantee that we are not raising the anger of God against ourselves is to make sure that we say what the Bible says the way the Bible says it. Because there are people who will say, but I am saying what the Bible says. But then they're doing it interpretively. Then they're doing it allegorically. 
here I'll demonstrate what I'm talking about. One of the commentaries on Isaiah that I have been looking at reads the entirety of Isaiah, not only through the New Testament, importing New Testament ideas that weren't developed at the time of Isaiah, but taking those ideas and reading them backwards into Isaiah as if Isaiah said it, and then taking a very modern eschatological bent and forcing that onto Isaiah. Okay, well then that wouldn't be saying what Isaiah said. That would be adding to what Isaiah said. Instead, if the Bible says it will come about that he who was left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, and everyone who was recorded for life in Jerusalem is going to be called holy, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem in her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, and then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of a flame of fire by night, for all the glory of God will be a canopy over her. Gosh, that sounds good, doesn't it? But it's also full of language that you could just interpret wildly. Or you can say, you know what God means here? He means exactly what he said. Because tonight we're going to see when he compares Jerusalem to a haughty woman, he's also going to say how he's going to bring that woman down. How he's going to make her smell bad, make her shave her head, bring her down to nothing. And it's within that context that he then turns around and says that he's going to make the daughters of Zion purged from the bloodshed of Jerusalem. And then he's going to pour out his spirit on them till it's like a canopy that hovers over Jerusalem specifically. That is all very physical language that has a physical location and a particular people who are the very particular people who broke the law, who God is judging, who God is going to restore. That's exactly what it says. Therefore, rather than risk the anger of God, I think we ought to say and proclaim exactly what the word says. Does that make sense? But if you do that, it means future for Israel. And as soon as I say future for Israel, there is a large portion of the reformed community that likes what we teach about salvation by grace, that likes what we teach about the doctrines of grace and Christian life. They like all that, but every time they hear me say future for Israel, they tune out. And they say, well, why, why do you have to be like that? Why do you have to be so premillennial? Why do you have to keep saying that stuff? Because the Bible keeps saying that stuff. And if you tune out, if you ignore it, if you avoid it, that is truncating the word of God, and you've been told specifically not to take away from the word of God, which is the very thing you're doing. Okay, so with that in mind, let's take a look at what God actually says to the exact same group of people, Jerusalem and Judah, and he says to them, I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to judge you harshly, and I'm going to restore you. 
the Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people, with the leadership in Jerusalem. It is the leadership primarily that God is so angry with because of the way that they have abused the lesser population, the way that they have abused the poor in their community. And he's very specific about it here. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. We're going to talk about what that phrase means in a minute. But the plunder of the poor is in your houses. That word plunder means what you have robbed, what you have taken away, what you have stolen from the poor ends up in your house. How unjust is that? How greedy is that? So God asks, what do you mean by crushing my people? Notice that he says they're my people. They're not your people. And yet you are abusing them for yourself for your own aggrandizement, for your own wealth. And therefore, you are crushing people who don't belong to you. They belong to me. And then he likens it to grinding the face of the poor. There's colorful language. You have ground them down with your excesses, with your abuses, with your taxes, with your high rates of interest, with the way that you have put them into slavery because they weren't capable of paying back the excessive usury that you put on them. And you are grinding their faces. And who says this? Declares the Lord God of hosts. There's that phrase again that Isaiah keeps using. The Lord God of hosts. The Lord of Sabaoth, the God who is in charge of heaven and earth. All the armies of the earth belong to him. The absolute sovereign one. He's the one who's speaking. He's the one who is standing to judge you people. And he is going to judge you based on your behavior. He's going to judge you based on the way that you have plundered the houses of the poor. The way you are crushing people. The way you are grinding people down. Therefore, you are nothing but Guilty. Now, I told you a moment ago that we were going to talk about this phrase. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. God is not just talking agriculturally at that moment. He's not just talking about the value of a good vineyard so that he could make wine. He's using the language of vineyard to say all of Jerusalem and the people in it, they belong to me. They collectively are the vineyard. I didn't just make that up here. I'll prove it to you. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 is the beginning of a song that Isaiah is singing in the place of God. Because by the time you get to verse 4, you're going to see God begin speaking in the first person. So it's obvious that this is a song that God is putting in place. He's doing it through Isaiah. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. So this is all about the vineyard. This is that vineyard language. This is going to explain what the vineyard is, and the vineyard belongs to God. That's the first thing you need to know. It's a song about my beloved, or of my beloved, that's God, concerning his vineyard. Now you do know that when we say song here, we don't mean a melodic song. We don't mean that this passage was ever meant to be set to music. Very much like the Song of Solomon or the Song of Moses. What that means is a recitation that people would memorize so that they too could recite it. 
So this was something that Israel was meant to remember. The prophet gave it to them directly from God. Let me sing now for God, my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. So everything about the vineyard is right. It's on a fertile hill. That means it gets plenty of water. It should just spring up. It should just take off. It should produce grapes aplenty. And he's expecting plenty of grapes and good grapes. He dug it all around. He removed its stones. He planted it with the best vine, the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. The tower was so that the vine dresser would have a way to stand in the tower and look over the whole vineyard, make sure that it wasn't either being attacked, either by animals or enemies. He would both dress the vines, he would care for the vines, and he would watch out for any danger against the vines. So he built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. So he's really expecting plentiful grapes because he puts a wine vat right in it. So that when the grapes come up and they're still just ripely picked, they can go straight to the vat. And you can make the new wine, the best wine out of it. And he expected it to produce good grapes. But it produced only worthless ones. Okay, so do you understand the scenario? Mm -hmm. God is talking about Jerusalem. In a minute he's going to say, Jerusalem is that vine. And he put it on a hill. That's such interesting language because Jerusalem did sit on a hill. And at the top of that hill was the temple of God, the very place where God chose to place his name. That was the place where the worship of God was supposed to take place out of the whole rest of the world. It was on the hill in Jerusalem where God placed his temple and his name and his worship. And he placed Israel in that exact area, the land of milk and honey, I mean, it was a great land, so it should have produced great fruit, and God was expecting it to produce fruit, but it produced worthless fruit. Verse 3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Boy, that's very bold of God. God is saying, okay, there's me, and I've been nothing but good to you. I've been nothing but faithful to you. Look at the description. I cared for my vineyard. I dug it all around. I removed all its stones. I planted it with the choicest vine. I put a tower in the middle of it. I hewed out a wine vat for it. I was expecting good fruit out of it, good grapes. That was me. I was nothing but good to you, and you were nothing but rebellious to me. So now you judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do? for my vineyard that I have not done. It's God defending himself and saying, what else did you expect out of me? I put you in the land of milk and honey. I brought you to your own land and then I drove out the wild animals and I drove out your enemies and I let you live at peace with plenty. What more do you want? By the way, at the time that Isaiah wrote this, King Uzziah, was still king in Jerusalem. He was king there for 52 years, and the vast majority of his rule was very prosperous. Jerusalem did really well. 
And you've got to kind of remember that when we look at the daughters of Israel in a minute. You've got to remember that, yeah, they, they were all well-to-do. So really, they were lacking nothing. And God says, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? I did everything necessary, including giving you my law. You even know what my expectations of you are. You even know that I said you could have life if you just lived by these standards, these rules, these ways of behaving and treating each other. I put all of that in front of you. What more do you want? And yet you rebelled against me. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. Are we clear what the vineyard is now? Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. The hedge was a protection. The reason that they would put hedges with thorns around the, the outsides of the vineyard was to keep the wild animals out because they would end up in the thorns. He says, I'm going to remove the hedge, which means all your enemies are going to come against you. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground and I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Now, it is that part of Isaiah that Jesus picked up when he decided to tell a parable about a vineyard. Turn to Matthew 21 for a moment. Matthew 21, we're going to start at verse 33. Matthew 21. This whole section, just so you know who Jesus is talking to, if you go back and you look at verse 15, it says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, And the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, yes. And then if you look at verse 23, and when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gives you this authority? So he's dealing with the chief priests. He's dealing with the elders. He's dealing with his enemies within Israel. And so he launches into a parable that they're going to understand. They're going to know. It's going to have echoes of Isaiah immediately. In fact, it's going to have such an echo of Isaiah that in the NASB, they actually make it a direct reference to Isaiah and capitalize part of it. Just so you get the the realization that this is a a direct quote from the Old Testament. Listen to another parable, says verse 33. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it 
and built a tower, all of that is right from Isaiah. We now know that when he said that, the chief priests are going to immediately think, oh, this is an Isaiah reference. This is a scriptural reference. And he rented it out to vine growers, and he went on a journey. That's really interesting, because once he says that he rented it out to vine growers, he's saying, I put you all in charge of it. You're the leaders in Jerusalem. You're to be following the law of God, and you're supposed to be following the precepts, the religion and teaching the people how to follow after God. So he rented it out to vine growers and then just left it with them. He went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned the third. And he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. That's a direct reference to all of the prophets that Israel sent, that God sent to Israel. God kept sending them prophets, kept sending them people who would speak the word of God to them. And what did Jesus say about Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets. So he was holding Jerusalem guilty for the death of the prophets. Here he's just putting it into a parable form and saying that the slaves, the the servants of God were sent one by one to you. And with each of them, you killed them. Verse 37, but afterwards he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Jesus just predicted what they were going to do. And sure enough, we know the end of the story. That's what they actually did. They became jealous of him, which is why they asked questions like, who gave you this authority? Why are you teaching like this? How are you teaching the people these things? Who allows you to say that? Where are you getting this authority? So he says, confirming again in this parable, that he is the very son of God, he says they're going to kill the son and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. They took him outside the walls of Jerusalem and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Da 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 da. <laughs> I would like to imagine that at that moment, Jesus actually went, da 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 That's such a critical question. They, in their ignorance, are still following along with the story, and they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds in their proper seasons. That's the right answer. They just don't know yet that they just accuse themselves. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. 
This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, and it will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Notice that he did not say a different nation. It will be taken away from you, you leaders in Jerusalem, you who have rejected the Son, but it's going to be given to a future nation of Israel, exactly like God is predicting in Isaiah. It's going to be given to a nation, not nations, not to the church. It's going to be given to a future generation of Israel, one that will produce the fruit of it. Why will they produce the fruit of it? Because of what we're going to read in Isaiah, that God is going to restore them. He's going to bring holiness to them, and he's going to build a canopy over them. So everything Jesus is saying here is right in league with what Isaiah is saying. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone, speaking of himself, will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. <laughs> and what did they do? Rather than repent. Rather than say, oh, thank you for instructing us and showing us how even back in Isaiah this was predicted. Oh, thank you for enlightening us so that our eyes are open to how we are rebelling against God and against his son. Thank you so much. Verse 46. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes because the multitudes held him to be a prophet. They wanted to seize him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to do the very thing Jesus just said. They're going to say, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Mm -hmm. So despite themselves, they ended up doing the very thing that Jesus said they were going to do. Why? Because Jesus is in charge and God is sovereign. And this was all predicted. Back to Isaiah. I was just looking to see if the Greek word for gotcha was there in verse 42. For gotcha? Gotcha. What would the Greek word for gotcha be? No idea. <laughs> and I don't want to add to the scripture either. So. True. So, so very true. Now, when we go back to verse 13 in Isaiah 3, the Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. Do you know what that means now? You understand the, the judgment that God is holding against them? The charge is, that's my vineyard. Jerusalem and Judah, they are my vineyard, and I expected good fruit out of them, and you're devouring it. And that is why God could say, you plunder the poor in their houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Now Israel, as I just said, under King Uzziah, were doing pretty well. They were pretty prosperous. In a week or two, we will get to Isaiah 6. Everybody knows the beginning of, of Isaiah 6 in the year that King Uzziah died. So Isaiah is going to give us that date stamp to say that in the year that King Uzziah died, that's when he saw God high and lifted up. 
But these things are occurring prior to Uzziah's death, and Israel is still bountiful. Israel has still got plenty, and therefore, starting at verse 16, God is going to describe the daughters of Zion as being rich women who walk around with their nose in the air and do everything they can to draw attention to themselves. Verse 16, Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with their heads held high and seductive eyes. That's an interesting Hebrew word there. It doesn't just mean painted eyes so that they will look seductive. But it also describes it as looking, searching, watching, constantly looking around longingly, yearning for what they don't have, looking all the time seductively for the things that they can get. They're walking around with their head held high and their seductive eyes. And they go along with mincing steps. They would take small steps as they would walk. And in a moment, he's going to explain to you why that would be. It was very common in the Middle East at that point for women who had enough money to buy ankle jewelry, which connected their ankles. And oftentimes, they would put bells and things like that on it so that when they walked in their very little steps, it was also making noise no matter where they were so that people would hear the the sound and turn to look. They were drawing attention to themselves, not only demonstrating that they had so much disposable cash that they could buy something as frivolous as what was on their ankles, but they were also demonstrating what they thought of themselves. Look at me, look at me. So they go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles of their feet. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. Whether it's because of disease, whether they shave their own heads because of the scabs, you know that the glory of a woman, we read that in the Bible, the the glory of a woman is her hair. And it was a shame, it was a, a literal shame, it was a sign of either repentance or if you were caught in adultery or other crimes, your head would be shaved so that you were publicly embarrassed, publicly shamed. So God is publicly shaming Jerusalem. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. And in that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets and their headbands, and their crescent ornaments, and their dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans and veils, all the stuff that they would beautify themselves with so that they could demonstrate to themselves and everybody around them that they were luxurious. God says, I'm going to take all that away from them. Verse 24, and now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, A minute ago, we read the reference to perfume boxes. 
Not only would the women perfume themselves, but they carried boxes of odors and scents around with them so that they were constantly giving off this sweet odor. Look what God said he's going to do. It will come about instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. You're going to stink. I'm going to make you smell sick. Instead of a belt, because they would wear their fine linen and leather belts, instead, a rope, because poor people, in order to keep their robes closed, the best they could do would be a rope. So he says, I'm going to take you down to what the poor people do. Instead of a belt, you're going to have a rope. Instead of well-set hair, you're going to have a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, you're going to be dressed in sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty, that word branding can also mean sunburned. In other words, they're going to end up out in the sun. Their skin is going to be burned. Instead of having that luxurious skin that they were used to with all their ointments and their perfumes and everything else, they were going to smell sickly and their skin was going to be burned. That, by the way, happened as a part of the Babylonian captivity. The first wave of captives that were taken out of Jerusalem were all the high and mighty all the rich, all the people of substance, who were then taken into Babylon, which is a long journey that they had to make by foot in the oppressive heat and sun. And then when they got to Jerusalem, they were put into servitude. So exactly what God described here actually occurred to them. And it would be a terrible shame if that's where it ended. As part of that captivity as part of God's punishment of Israel. So many men died that chapter 4 says, for seven women will take a hold of one man in that day, saying, we'll eat our own bread, we'll wear our own clothes. In other words, I don't want anything from you. The law says that if you take a wife, especially if you took more than one wife, you had to make sure that every one of those wives got her daily portion. Every day you had to make sure that you fed her, that you took care of her, that you dressed her, that you were responsible for her. But then these women are going to say, look, we're going to eat our own bread. I added the word look, but I think it's implied in the text. If I'm not adding to the word. We will eat our own bread and we will wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. In other words, marry us and take away our reproach. Because to be an unmarried woman with no children was a reproach in Jerusalem. And the men are all gone. And so seven women are going to call one man and just say, just, just take away our reproach. Okay, so that's going to be the state. That is what God is going to do to the daughters of Zion. Very specific language, daughters of Zion. The rich, haughty women of Zion. Not only is he going to bring them down to smelling bad and being burnt and their skin being destroyed and their hair being taken away from them and their desperation just to find a man that will marry them. That's going to be their state. Look at verse 2. And in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. 
Wow, that's a harsh juxtaposition, isn't it? You're going, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, and then suddenly the branch of the Lord, who is obviously Christ, who is referred to as the branch continually in the Old Testament, the branch of David, the offspring of the lineage in the house of David, the branch of the Lord, the offspring of God, the only begotten of the Father. He's the one who is going to be beautiful and glorious. He is also the solution to Israel's problem. He is also the solution to the leaders, the leaders who have been crushing the faces of the poor in Jerusalem, who are nothing but guilty. God has risen to stand and judge and contend against them. And the women who in their finery and in their wealth have looked down on the poor, put their nose up, walk around, lusting after everything that they see. So both the men and the women have been brought down dramatically by God And now here's the solution. Because the solution, as I keep saying, can't be in them. Just like the solution can't be in us. The solution can't be in the sinner. The sinner can't fix his sin problem. The rebel can't fix his rebellion problem. He's too busy rebelling. And so God has to fix the problem. And the solution to the problem is the branch of the Lord. The branch of Yahweh. He will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. And it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. There's interesting, very sovereign language. The people who remain in Jerusalem were recorded for life in Jerusalem. In other words, all of these things are falling out exactly according to the plan of an absolutely sovereign God who has already recorded these things. He's already written them down. He's already determined it. Just like the book of life. Just like the other books that we see in the book of Revelation. The deeds of every person. And those books are going to be open and people are going to be judged out of the things that are written in the books. God is keeping meticulous records of what it is that he is doing in his creation. And everyone who is recorded for life will be in Jerusalem. And everyone who remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Has that happened yet? No, not yet. Well, then that's eschatology. That's prophetic eschatology. So what are we going to say eschatologically and prophetically about the future of the Jews and Jerusalem? Well, we have to say exactly what God said, which is there will be people in Jerusalem because he has determined it. He has recorded it. He has sovereignly determined that there is going to be a remnant in Jerusalem who were recorded for life in Jerusalem, and they are all going to be called holy. Mm. That's what we have to say. God is going to have the holy remnant In Jerusalem, the reason I keep using the word remnant is because it says, and it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains. That's a remnant of Judah that remains in Jerusalem, and they're going to be called holy. But wait, he doesn't stop there. Remember the description that he has already given of Jerusalem as a high-minded woman 
when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, does the word of God at that moment say that the Lord is going to wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion? That is exactly and precisely what it says. So then what are we going to say about it? Are we going to say that's the church? No, because it's the exact same group that he has already described. In Isaiah's time, Jerusalem at that moment was busy crushing the poor and being high-minded. And God was judging those particular people. And out of that particular people group, he promised a remnant that would be nothing but holiness. And in that particular people group, he said that he was going to wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion, the very ones who he just described as the ones he would make filthy, as the ones he was going to make putrid, as the ones that he was going to make bald. And now he says, and I'm going to fix it. What's the difference between I'm going to stand to judge you and I'm going to restore you? What's the thing that occurred in the middle of those two? It was the righteous branch of God that shows up. That's what makes the difference. The righteous branch of Yahweh is the Messiah of Israel. And he is going to make it just and justifiable that God is going to keep all the promises of a glorious future that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Despite the fact that Israel is sinful and rebellious and putrid and a a non-fruit-bearing vineyard, despite all that, God is going to fix it. God is going to repair it, and he's going to do it through his son, the one who is beautiful and glorious. And the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. Okay, now that's hard to imagine, but we have good indications in other places to help us understand it. For instance, when God brought Israel out of Egypt in order to light the way of the Israelites and to block the way of the onset of the Egyptian army, God brought down a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. And he was a pillar of fire toward Israel so that they could see their way to go through the Red Sea on dry ground. But he was a pillar of smoke that darkened the way of the Egyptians, which stopped them from being able to pursue until he lifted that. And then it says that that pillar of smoke and fire went with them, led them through the wilderness for the next 40 years. Here Isaiah picks up that very well-known, very common description of the presence of God, very common and well-known to the Jews of his time, not as common and well-known these days within the church, but common and well-known to the Jews who know their own history, who know that it was the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire that led them out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land. And so the ultimate end of the promised land and the Jews in it is that God is going to bring back that same pillar of fire and smoke. And he's going to bring on a cloud by day, even smoke, 
and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. And over all of that glory of God is going to be a canopy. And there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and a refuge and a protection from the storm and from the rain. He is going to utterly and completely provide for them and protect them. And I can't wait to see that. I want to understand exactly what the canopy covering the glory of the flaming cloud by night and the pillar of smoke by day. That's fascinating language. I would love to see what that's about and how that works. And I hope that when we're in heaven, we'll get to look down and go, oh, oh, I see. That's that's how it works. Because we're going to know where to find it. All we got to do is look at Jerusalem. Because God said that's where it's going to be. Now, what are we going to say about that? What are we going to say eschatologically? Because that hasn't happened yet. If you go look at Jerusalem today, that's not happening. That is not the geological, geographic, topographical description of Jerusalem at this moment. But it has to happen because Isaiah predicts it's going to happen. That means it's eschatological prophecy. So what are we going to say about it? Are we going to explain it away? Are we going to say that it is somehow fulfilled in an allegorical sense within the church? Or are we going to say that God, who knows what he's talking about, said Jerusalem is the vineyard and Jerusalem, the daughters of Zion specifically, are the ones who he is going to judge, but also the ones that he's going to restore. And there is no way to avoid the logical succession of thought that goes from Jerusalem and Judah to Jerusalem and Judah. And if you're going to say something else than that about it, you better have the word behind you. Because you don't want to be stirring up the ire of God. Make sense? Makes sense. Questions? Do you think that is a millennial reference or an eternal state reference? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was helpful. <laughs> I do think it's a millennial or a eternal state reference, yes. <laughs> True. So there's a canopy that covers Jerusalem during the millennium, or there's one that's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles when the New Jerusalem descends to the earth. Considering that all of the remnant that is left there is all considered holy, I think you could make the argument for the New Jerusalem. But I think you could also argue that it's the millennial period because as we continue through Isaiah, we're going to see descriptions of the millennial period that are so very unlike how the world is today. I mean, can God decide to place a a canopy over the place where he chose to place his name? He can if he wants to. And he just said he's going to. But can I put an exact date on it? I can't. Uh, that would be too much speculation. What were you going to say? It's interesting he mentions it protects them from the sun by day and the rain as well. Um, so I don't know. And the New Jerusalem, it says there's no sun. Right. So maybe an argument can be made there. Yes, Micah. In, in verse 2, uh, verse referencing to Christ as the branch where it says the, uh, the pride and adornment of the survivors in, in Israel, 
is uh, the fruit of the earth. Is that a reference to the branch and therefore also a reference to Christ as well? Yeah, as a result of Christ, the holy people that he redeems in Israel are finally going to produce that fruit that God expected from them to begin with. Yeah. Because when he redeems, he redeems completely, which is also all the reasons that I'm completely comfortable with the notion of everything that we read about Ezekiel's temple and restoring Israel back to the type of worship that they were assigned to and never got right. God didn't just give up on it. He's going to change their hearts, minds, souls, inhabit them, and then bring them to the very form of worship that he demanded from them in the beginning that they never did right. So that's all part of his redemptive work in Israel. In other words, he's not just going to say, well, you didn't do it close enough. Whatever it is that he expected from them, he's ultimately going to get from them. Anything else? All right. Say goodnight to the internet congregation. Good night. Good night. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.